This special Answers for Elders podcast honoring military veterans is sponsored by Carriage. For more information about Carriage, the website is C-A-R-E-A-G-E dot com. Well, this is Chuck Olmstead. I'm at Patriots Landing in DuPont, Washington. And with me today for our veterans interview for Answers for Elders is George Osborne. George, welcome to Answers for Elders. Well, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, well, we've had a chance to chat for a few minutes before we started recording. And uh, you've got some really interesting research here. You've brought a few books, and we started talking about your family back in uh, the Seattle days in the early 1900s. And uh, we'll chat about that in just a second. But uh, uh, I just, uh, obviously, with your family being uh, coming from here, you were born in this area, correct? I was born in Seattle. In Seattle. What year? 1939. 39. So 10 years after the Depression hit, do you remember uh, 39? It would have been really kind of the beginnings of World War II. So do you remember those those times of... Well, I, rem- I don't remember when the war started. All I remember is as a kid there was a war going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember distinctively when it ended, and I really remember when President Roosevelt died, because he died on my sixth birthday, April 12th, 1945. Interesting. And uh, I had a, my, a nice big birthday party that day, and I was all excited about it, and all of a sudden... Uh, the word came across, and I didn't know who, other than the fact, I guess he was the president. But I was upset because all the mothers came and took their kids home, hmm. and my birthday party ended abruptly. And uh, But I remember I got a goldfish from somebody for my birthday, and I named him Franklin Roosevelt. <laughs> that was my sixth birthday. Isn't that amazing how those memories can flood back? Yes. From 1945. Right. You know, but um, obviously Roosevelt uh, was highly revered as, uh, what, four terms as president? Yeah, he was on his fourth term. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so even at six years old, you recognized um, the, with the war ending. I'm sure you have memories of that as well. Well, I remember uh, my father wasn't in the military, but... Uh, I can remember living in West Seattle that everybody, including us, we had uh, uh, chickens in the backyard, I mean, and we had a victory garden, and I know that gasoline was rationed, Mm -hmm. and sugar was rationed, and a number of other things were rationed, Mm -hmm. and uh, I can vividly remember that. Sure, sure. So West Seattle, and you're a, a youngster. Uh, where did you end up going to high school then? West Seattle High School. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. What was life like in Seattle back in the uh, late 40s, early 50s? Well, I had an interesting experience when I was going to, to grade school. Uh, in 1949, the, probably the worst earthquake that we ever had took place. And that was on April the 13th. And fortunately, I wouldn't be here today because fortunately this took place during spring break. And I was at a friend's house playing and then his mother 
uh, wanted him to had to go downtown to Rhodes Department Store, and he had to buy some shoes, and so I went down there with him. And uh, I was on First Avenue in Seattle, and she was up in Rhodes, and he and I, who were 10, we were in a trick and puzzle shop on First Avenue, and the earthquake came. And we walked out, and I could see the street rolling and windows falling out of the department store. And, uh, you know, that was kind of interesting <laughs> as a 10-year-old kid. And sure, she sure. came running out of there and hugging us and, are you all right, et cetera, et cetera. And then I got home, and um, uh, one of the neighbor kids said, did you see what happened to the, I went to Lafayette grade school. Did you see what happened to the grade school? No. Well, it fell down. Oh, my. The, the building was the oldest. It was originally the high school and and the whole school for West Seattle, built in the eight, about 1890. And uh, so I darted up there, and there the whole thing, and there was nobody in but the custodian, and he was in the basement, and he was fine. But it happened at about 11.50, and if that would have been a school day, we'd have been coming out for lunch. There would have been... All of a those disaster. kids would have been. All of those kids would have been probably killed. Yeah, I mean, and that that was rather interesting, but it was kind of a little kid's dream in the fourth grade to have the school fall down because <laughs> now they had to figure out where we're going to go to school for the uh -huh. rest of the year. Yeah, and they so we got another week of spring vacation. So people have asked me if, about something. I'll say, well. I think that was probably taught that week that I was out of school in the fourth grade. <laughs> anyway, we went to another grade school for the rest of the year, and then in the fifth grade, my sister was five years ahead of me in school, and she started high school at West Seattle, and they put portables up at West Seattle, and the fifth and sixth graders went up there. So I went up to the West Seattle High School the same year she did. Interesting. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, that was growing up there. So... Uh... Was the West Seattle Bridge in existence at that time? How did you get across there the was waterways? A, there, was, there was Harbor Avenue and uh -huh. the bridge, yes. It was uh -huh. a, a, one uh, you could come up Admiral Way or Avalon. Right. Yeah. So, it wasn't the over big over bridge. Oh, it was the low one. It on was a, a low one? On Harbor Avenue. Got it. Okay. And it was right after the war that they built the... Uh, the viaduct are about from Harbor Island over to Beacon Hill uh -huh. over those railroad tracks. Right, right. Yeah, that thousands of people now cross every day. Yeah, well, that's I've... been big expanded and everything yeah. else. Yeah, So, um, what happens after high school? You're um, you graduate from high school. What year? 1957. Okay, so Korean War is over and. Right. Uh, uh, of course, Vietnam really didn't get super active until the early mid '60s. Right. So there was kind of a lull in there, although there was this competition with the Soviet Union. So was that a, a an emphasis uh, during that time when you were graduating from high school, or was there much thought about it? Well, my thought when I graduated from high school, and also my parents thought that I would go to college, mm -hmm. and so I, I went to Washington State University. And uh, I was there four years, and I majored in, in business and economics. 
And when I was at WSU at that time, uh, in the economics department, they had uh, a specialty on transportation. I was always interested in uh, cars and trucks and buses. And I mean, as a little kid, I memorized every bus route in the city of Seattle. Mm -hmm. And anyway, so that course, I had six courses in transportation, transportation economics, an air and water course, the ICC, urban transportation, uh, railroads and trucks, interstate commerce law, and all that kind of stuff. Interesting, yeah. And one professor that taught that. Uh huh. Yeah. So was that then a major? Was that your major? Was... My major was in. It was part of the economics department. I see. Yeah. I mean, that was a field. I mean, some kids can take it, accounting, and other mm-hmm. people can do something else. Mm-hmm. So, what did you want to do when you graduated from college? Then, what was your what was your goal? I wanted to uh, be involved with something in transportation. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah, I understand. So, what happens after college? Then, do you uh, did you you go into the service or? Yes. Uh huh. I knew. I just waited for the draft, and they were drafting. Mm -hmm. And all the while that I was in college in the summertime, uh, I was fortunate to have a job uh, at the Safeway Warehouse in downtown Seattle, which happens to be today where uh, CenturyLink Field is. That used to be the produce warehouse for Safeway. That's right across the street from my office now. (laughs) And uh, my dad uh, knew the uh, guy that was the manager of the warehouse. And uh, so he got me that job down there. And my first year as a kid out of high school, I had to go out there and work my buns off. And here they, they made the new guys... Uh, go out on the loading dock and unload uh, boxcars of 100-pound sacks of potatoes. And I could hardly lift one of them. And they'd send you out with a guy who could just easily f- put those on those pallet boards. And and so I was getting harassed night after night doing that. And I made a comment to my dad about it. And he said, you really gave me some, <laughs> you know how lucky you are to have this job, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So the and I did so a bunch of stupid things, you know. As a kid, I was on one of those forklifts and I ran it into a banana machine and I did a dumped over a bunch of other stuff. And I didn't. I thought I was going to get fired, but anyway, at the, the night foreman, I had to work nights, nine thirty at night to six in the morning. And my last day there, I was going to college, and the foreman said, "Well, George, I hope you'll be back next year." Really, and the next year I got back there, I got to unload uh, trailers with peaches in them <laughs> instead of potatoes. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so when did you go into the service? I I got drafted. Um, well, when I got out of when I got out of college in in '61, uh, I became good friends with a professor of geography professor and they had a a trip to Europe 10 weeks and 
I wanted to go, and my mother, my dad thought it was just fine, and my mother was skeptical about it because they'd never been anywhere. And so uh, this guy and his wife took us on a 10-week trip uh, all over Europe. We camped out for 10 weeks all over the place. And that whole trip, airfare, the 10 weeks, cost $1,500, period. Wow. So I had to, I borrowed the money from my parents because I said I'd pay for it. So while I was working at Safeway, I was able to pay back that loan, and I just waited for the draft. And then I got drafted in March of, of 1962. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So uh, where did you do your basic? I did my basic at Fort Ord, California. Uh-huh. And then they, my math grades were pretty good. So they sent me to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and there was to be an artillery surveyor. And, uh, and then I got sent uh, to Korea. And I went to Oakland and got on a troop ship, and that took about 10 days to get across. And when I got off the ship in Incheon, um, they said uh, I was destined to go up on the DMZ in an artillery unit. And they said, uh, any of you guys know how to type? And I raised my hand. I knew how to type. And so they had me take a typing test, and they assigned me to the headquarters of the 1st Cavalry Division up in G1. Hmm. And my job, basically, was, uh, at that time, they had what they called katusas. They were Koreans augmented to the United States Army. And the katusas were the ones that did the KP and and latrines and all that kind of stuff instead of our soldiers doing that. And all those units that were in the 1st Cavalry Division, the artillery, the aviation units, the infantry units, et cetera, et cetera, uh, would notify me if, because they came from the Korean army, they'd send some there, and then they'd go back to the Korean army and they'd send new ones. And I had to keep track of of them. And then once a month I'd go down to Seoul and turn in the report to 8th Army headquarters. Hmm. So it's better than the DMZ. Yeah, and I I did that job for about six months, five, six months, and they were going to bring, they wanted my job replaced by uh, a civilian, which was equivalent to like a colonel in pay, and so they sent me to be a company clerk in an aviation company. Interesting. So I did that for the balance of the time I was in Korea. Mm Mm-hmm. So you spent a majority of your two years with the service over in Korea. Thirteen months. Uh-huh. And there was a couple of little skirmishes that took place up on the DMZ. Mm-hmm. And I, when I was company clerk, I had a morning report that I had to do. And uh, in that aviation company, we had, we had a guy that got missing in action in North Korea because he was a helicopter pilot going across by the DMZ. And he guess he got too far over. Anyway, every day I'd had to put his name down, missing in action. I'll finish that story in a few minutes. So, 
anyway, that was basically my Korean experience. And then I had five months left to go, and I was sent to Fort Sam Houston in Texas. And my job there was to make up the DD-214s, which got people out of the military. I was at Fifth Army Headquarters. Mm -hmm. And I was there when President Kennedy was assassinated. I was in Texas. Mm. And the day that before he went to Dallas, he was in San Antonio. But I was taking my physical to get out of the Army that day, and I didn't see the president. And Mm. then when that all happened... um, we were all glued to the TV like everybody was. Of course, of course. Yeah. Wow. Some, Yeah, and of course everyone who was alive at that time who knows where they were and when they heard it and, and what life was like after President Kennedy was shot. So after that, I had two years of reserve, and I wanted to be in the transportation industry somewhere and I went to an employment agency and the Northern Pacific Railway was looking for somebody and they had a job as a as a clerk in their sales office in Spokane well I had a lot of friends in Spokane because I went to school over there sure so I went over there to Spokane and while I was in Spokane, I was reading the paper, and down at the bottom of this little paper one day was the name of the guy that I mentioned a few minutes ago yeah. that had gone into North Korea, and the North Koreans had sent him, given him back to South Korea. And so he was listed there in that newspaper. Yeah, in the Spokesman Review. Interesting. So he got out. He got out. I mean, that was kind of a... Yeah, interesting. ...ending to my... Yeah. Thing there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interesting. So how how long then did you work for the railroad? I worked for the railroad from, I got out in 64, and I was in Spokane for a year and a half or so. Then they made me a chief clerk in Pasco, and I was only there three months. And then, then I went to Lewiston, Idaho for about nine months, and then I got sent to Seattle. And I, when they were starting... Uh, TOFC trailers on flat cars and so that would have been in um, April of uh, 68 60 yeah 68 and then um, and then I did that and in uh, that winter I was asked by K-Line, the Japanese company. Um, they were bringing containers in, and we were getting them out of there. And, and um, I wasn't too thrilled with staying with the railroad. Money was good and all the rest of it, well, in those days. But I could see the handwriting on the wall that if I'm going to work there... I'm going to be moving all over the country because mm-hmm. my predecessors were. I mean, sure, I moved to Seattle, and the next thing I'd probably be in St. Paul or I'd be right. somewhere else. And I really didn't want to move all over the place. And I got some more money, and this steamship line uh, called me and 
because I'd gotten some containers off the waterfront for them, and they were all happy, and they needed a container manager. So uh, Kurt Steamship, who were the agents for K-Line, which is Kawasaki, uh, asked if I would have a take a job there for them managing their containers. So I did, and I was with them for 37 years. Wow, wow. So I, they started their own container terminal in Seattle, and I was the terminal manager there. And then, uh, well, the agency had it, and then K-Line itself, whose U.S. headquarters is in Long Beach, uh, sent me down to Tacoma. And uh, my career, I was, uh, I was down here from 19... 19- 88 till I retired in 05. I see. When K-Line moved their operation to the Port of Tacoma, and I was the vice president of, of uh, the company and general manager of the terminal. Interesting. So I, don't think, I, I don't think most people have any concept of what it takes in the transportation, especially in shipping, to track those containers of, of, of the hundreds of containers that are on a ship. Yeah. <laughs> and then thousands. they go and thousands that then go into a terminal, and how that's all tracked is pretty amazing. Well, you know, getting back to that, I mean, when I got uh, first into this, and I'll get it to what it was more like today, but I was to keep track of these containers, and there wasn't a lot of them. The first ships had seventy or eighty of them on, and then they started shipping them across the country. And I was, that was before I was a terminal manager. And I had, I had a big magnetic board. I was in a cubicle Mm -hmm. in their office, downtown Seattle. And I had a magnetic board. And when the containers came off, they were were all typed up in, in little magnets, little piece of paper. And then I would, the railroad would tell me that they're on their way to Chicago, for example. Right. And we had offices all over the United States that uh, Kerr, Kerr did, the agent, and they were keeping track of this stuff. So every every office had a, had a region that they had to, in other words, we didn't have an office in Minneapolis, but the Chicago office took care of that. Right, right. So then by phone, I would talk to the guy in Chicago, and he'd say, oh, I got this, this, and this. Then I'd move my magnet across the board that it, where it was uh-huh. yeah. and kept track of them. Uh-huh. And one night I came in there and the cleaning person had knocked my board off the wall and <laughs> I had to figure out where to put all these magnets. <laughs> wow. You think about that technology and you laugh about it now, but that's all you had at the time, right? That's right. They I mean, you know, computers. no such thing as a computer, you know, that was, that was as the best technology that you had. So. But we were, we were dealing with a ship that only had maybe 70, 80 of them uh-huh. uh, on there. And now you've got several thousand that are on there. It's a, it's, it's crazy. It's all yeah. computerized. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one of our a chief engineer that I work with has has helped uh, with uh, solving some some problem solving on some of the cranes that lift those containers up. Right. And he said, "You cannot fathom how big those cranes are when you're driving by the port and you see them out there. 
you know, you don't realize just how big those structures are and how much weight that they're lifting and the technology behind each of those cranes, those shipping cranes. Yeah, and now because of security and a lot of other things, uh, you can't just willy-nilly go down and wander around on those docks because there there is stuff. But because uh, I used to have friends and relatives and uh, go down there and mm-hmm. see how all this stuff worked. Yeah, can't do it anymore. No, not at all. Well, George, we've just got a few minutes left, but uh, you've 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 shared some interesting stories. Have you? Have you you had shown me a book uh, here that you have of of your family back in the 1900s and some of your original uh, was it uncles? Well, yeah. What happened uh, with the family was that uh, my they came from Kansas and they came out here. My grandfather's two older brothers and the the oldest one went up to Canada and lived up there as a fisherman and the next oldest one got a job as a policeman and then there was a younger brother that came and uh, the younger brother uh, got the bubonic plague and what had happened in those days was that the ship ships uh, up until 1900, everything on the West Coast came into San Francisco. And they put some prevention down there after the plague hit there. And then some ships from China and the Far East came into Seattle. And that's when the rats were coming off the ship. And they spread the plague. And there was my... Uh, great uncle that one of them that got the plague from the rats and as a result of all of that um, he was being nursed by two of his unmarried sisters and his sister-in-law and they got the plague and there were three other people that got the plague and in uh, they all died in October of 1907 and then uh, the governor of the state uh, mandated that all the ships had to have rat guards. And so if you look at any ship coming into the United States, there's a guard on all the, on all the lines. Mm-hmm. So the rats can't come off the ships if they happen to be on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was rather ironic that uh, my great-grandfather, who did not get the plague, but he lost three of his kids and a daughter-in-law and the police department put an obelisk monument up there at Lakeview Cemetery and uh, I didn't know where my great-grandfather was buried but I knew he was there and I anyway the funeral director said yeah he's here but there's no monument and or grave marker and I was able I found the marriage certificate of my great-grandparents in in a box that my dad had after he passed away. And there was proof that he was in the Civil War because it had their marriage certificate of 1867. Hmm. And I took that to the funeral director up at uh, Lakeview, and we mailed it off to the VA, and they provided this bronze grave marker. And so it was on the 
12th of July of 2015, 100 years to the day, we had the family there, and he was an Episcopalian, and I was, and I had my Episcopal minister there, and my great-grandfather's name was William Alexander Osborne, and I have one of my grandsons' name is Alexander William Osborne, hmm. and he was nine at that time. And we had a cloth over the grave marker, and Alex was able to pull the cloth. Wow. Out. And we had cousins and everybody else. Yeah, yeah. On, at, up at Lakeview. Incredible history, you know. And, uh, well, George, I want to thank you for sharing your story on uh, Answers for Elders Radio and our, our veterans feature. And uh, I know you've got probably a, lots of more stories in you. And, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> some really very, very interesting things. But I want to... I want to thank you for joining me today. I want to thank you for your service as well. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. This has been a special Honoring Veterans presentation of Answers for Elders, brought to you by Carriage. For more information about Carriage, the website is C-A-R-E-A-G-E.com. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families, too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.